Welcome back to the Social Work Social. My name is Melanie Matthews, and I'm a registered social worker. Last season, we explored the world of mental health treatment by sharing information and stories told by social workers. This season, we're going to go even deeper by exploring how different helping professionals work with social workers to support mental health and well-being, and also to pursue social justice. Before we get started, I have two disclaimers to make. The first is that you should be aware that all the information presented in this podcast is specific to Ontario, Canada. Different professionals follow different rules and restrictions dictated by their regulatory body in their area. The second disclaimer is that nothing in this podcast should be considered medical advice or treatment. You're unique. That means that what we talk about today might not be quite right for you. So if you're interested in any topics presented here, be sure to get in contact with a professional directly. That said, let's get into today's episode. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Sarah. She's a social psychologist currently working as a case manager. Sarah's going to tell us about her experiences working with social workers on a multidisciplinary team in a community setting, as well as her perspectives from a social psychology background. There's no trigger warning for this episode. My name is Sarah Bond, and I have an honors Bachelor of Arts in Social Psychology from McMaster University, as well as a graduate certificate in Concurrent Disorders from Mohawk College. I am from the lovely city of Stratford, Ontario, and I went to school and worked in Hamilton, Ontario for nine years before I started my current job, which has brought me to Toronto, and this is where I currently live and work. In my spare time, I like to camp, hike, skate. Pre-pandemic world, I did a lot of triathlons. So I, of course, like uh, the swimming, the biking, and the running as well. That's a little bit about me. Well, thanks for being here, Sarah. I feel like this is going to be a super cool conversation because I know almost nothing about the social psychology degree. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe you can start by telling us about that. What is a social psychology degree? What did you study? Okay, so at McMaster, um, I started in just an undergrad in psychology, and McMaster actually is a very medical-based school, For and I think a lot of people know that just based on uh, the amazing nursing degrees that are there and a lot of the science background, and you can get, like, you're pretty sure you can get a PhD and become a doctor actually at, like, do medical school at McMaster. Um, so I started in my undergrad Uh, just in regular psychology and then the social psychology program came about when I was in second or third year as an option Um, and at that time it was really helpful because I found I was doing really well in like a lot of my sociology courses and maybe not as much in my science-based courses Um, and I learned very quickly that social psychology and the stream it was a multidisciplinary program as it was which is very nice now because I'm working in a multidisciplinary team. So it, it a lot of people went into that program and went into different fields of work afterwards. So social psychology truly is understanding how people's minds are influenced by others around them. So like we as humans function in society and the ways that we interact with others, it influences our mind and how we process things and everyone has their own history and trauma and like there's a lot of genetic pieces into how we think about ourselves and others and social psychologists like look at that (laughs) and the basic understanding of it is not just the brain in in an entity by itself but the brain and how it's influenced by the world around them in society the social aspect of it and how that 
kind of comes into the work that I do now is how so social psychologists really focus their efforts on helping their clients and the people that they're working with address potentially damaging mental health issues and like what does that look like in the big scheme of society as well right if there's a chemical imbalance or you have a diagnosis what are the social impacts of that what are the biological and chemical impacts of that but truly the social piece of that that's the biggest thing we're not looking I mean I'm not looking as much into the science side of it <laughs> looking more into the social side of it and the community-based like how do we create a community out of that or how do you create an understanding of your self-identity out of that my graduate thesis is about self-identity and self-perception and how women it was really getting into like the nitty-gritty of how women are influenced by their peers and especially their roommates in terms of like diet culture and exercise culture and like your self-identity out of that. And so I really got, I thought I was going to go into like graduate research and self-identity and understanding. And then I, I ended up, um, after I finished my degree, I was looking at like all of the college programs because I had all of this great, this great marks in university, which don't really necessarily mean a lot in the real world, other than a lot of like tangible soft skills that are really, really helpful when you actually get into the work field. And then I, I was applying to a bunch of random different graduate certificates in college because I was like, I want some actual like experience in the field before I start working. And I was applying to concurrent disorders and mental health and addictions at Durham and I was like maybe I want to go into public policy so I was looking at all those things and then I started concurrent disorders at Mohawk which is a phenomenal college I I don't know I wasn't considering college until I literally got into my fourth year at, at Mac and then I'm so glad that I chose college because it actually properly prepares you for the workforce if you will and like getting a job and it was an eight-month program and it came with a, I think it was a 12-week practicum at the end. And I ended up at, I can say, I guess, like Good Shepherd Women's Services in Hamilton. And Good Shepherd is so well-known. And I just it kind of went from there. <laughs> yeah, amazing. I mentioned it before in this podcast as well that I kind of did the same thing. Like I have a, a bachelor's and a master's in social work. Yeah. But I, I also started in college. I got a three-year child and youth work diploma. And I feel like that was such a valuable experience, even though I didn't end up in child and youth work, I actually avoid working with children at this point um, because I find it really, really difficult for all kinds of reasons. Really challenging, really challenging. Yeah, it, it is. But uh, the experience in college was so valuable and getting mm -hmm. those placements with hands-on experience, amazing. And yeah. I find your, your degree so fascinating too, because it's something that I think as people, we kind of know. We know that, you know, peer pressure is a thing. I, the phrase that keeps coming to mind as you were talking was like that stereotypical thing that parents would say, like, oh, if all your friends went and jumped off a bridge, would you do the same thing? <laughs> Groupthink, groupthink. <laughs> exactly. And the answer is probably um, yep. because we are so influenced by our peers and the people around us. So it's interesting to me that there's a whole field of study in that. That's so cool to understand that in depth. Yes, yeah. And that humans don't operate as silos in the world. Like we, even if you self identify as an introvert or don't really like people all that much. There are, which I'm the complete opposite, I love people and I'm very much an extrovert. 
However, I mean, even if you, you identify with like as that, you still are influenced. Like there are still humans that have raised you in some way, shape or form. And there are still people who connect with in society, even if you don't necessarily like people all that much. And there is still some intrinsic influence there. And we, we are not raised in society. Like even we are raised understanding specific things, even the incidental stereotypes that our parents have like, I don't know, instilled in us. I don't know whether it's an instillment, but they, with like the language that was used as we were growing up, um, the city that we grew up in. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Southwestern Ontario. We can understand demographically, culturally, socioeconomically what that looked like, especially knowing Stratford. It's a relatively well-off city. It's got the theater. It's got the culture and the arts. I mean, we are pretty lucky in Stratford. I'd say it's a very progressive city and I have a lot of people that I love dearly that are still there including my parents so progressively it is it's it's wonderful that way and that's primarily because of the culture and the arts that's there that helps and allows that um but yeah we're not we're not alone in this society <laughs> that's the biggest thing and our brains know that as well even if we choose not to to want to interact much with people our brains are very aware that we're not functioning alone in society it's interesting to think about too. I'm on the opposite end. I'm very much an introvert, which is why it's kind of ironic that I ended up in a field where I literally talk to people all day. Yeah. <laughs> and I've chosen to do like a podcast where I'm literally mm-hmm. doing public speaking all the time too. But knowing that. You're very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but especially during this time when, you know, during quarantine, when we're so isolated, even for myself, I thought right off the bat, like, oh, I'm going to be fine. I like being alone. But after a couple weeks of it, like, okay, I like being alone, but this is a bit much. We need yep. to have other people in order mm-hmm. to function really well. Yeah. And I feel other people and we choose other people in our lives that help us understand ourselves, especially as we become adults. I feel I, I my, my best friend and some of my closest friends are from my childhood, which is not, I think it's a bit rarer in our generation. Like my best friend is truly like a person I've known since I was four or five years old. However, we don't really, those are, those are true gems really because um, it, they see you through like different stages in your life that you might want to potentially forget as you become an adult, right? Um, and I feel like in our adulthood um, or adulthood, <laughs> we, we create or we, we choose friendships and we find people that help us reflect different aspects of our own personality, especially those that we enjoy. We want, we like having diverse groups of friends. Um, somebody might bring out a different side in us than, than somebody else. And we might see ourselves in somebody else in a different way than, I mean, and it, it's, it's, it's interesting, even if you have like a smaller, closer group knit of friends, like not everybody's the exact same at, at all. And I have, I have a large variety of friends. I am an extrovert. So I've got a lot of people that I, I love equally and dearly. And they're all very, very different and very, I mean, I actually, now that I think about it, honestly, Mel, I, I know a lot of people that work in the health and profession in general and in healthcare. I have a lot of nursing friends. I lived with all nurses throughout McMaster, like my time at McMaster University. And I have a lot of friends in social services and the helping field. And even if I'd say I have a lot of friends who are teachers and even um, some of my friends who work more on like the business side, like went to get their MBA, work in like financial side. I feel that 
we discuss the things that like there is a helping side to finance right people need money to survive in society and the way that they look at their job it comes in the helping field even though and so then i i guess maybe i surround myself with a lot of helpers and and uh and that's why i end up having a lot of people that i connect well with So knowing all of that, knowing your personality and your background and the things you're interested in and the people you relate to, how did all of that impact the work that you do now? Um, I think it's quite interesting. Um, I think you and I spoke about this previously, but our own lived experience of things really impacts what we do and our understanding and our definition, like our own self-identity. Because growing up in a for better lack of a term, like a relatively stable environment with parents that stayed together and amazing siblings and amazing friends and a great education. Like what does (laughs) trauma look like in that context, right? Everyone has their own personal traumas and especially especially women um, and people who identify as women. Um, From the outside, what does it look like? I am a... A, a white, like relatively straight, flexible cisgender women, woman, right? And so, to the out, to the out, outer person, you look at like myself. I'm in a heterosexual relationship. I am a, a white younger woman, and what does that? What does trauma look like for me? And I'm not going to necessarily go into my own personal trauma. I don't think I have the <laughs> the head or the stomach for that right now, but learning just from a lot of like my peers and a lot of my friends and when you are uh, when you are an extrovert and you love people and truly want to know people people share a lot of things and uh, I mean I just love people so much (laughs) and so I really wanted to help people um, especially people who needed a little bit more support navigating parts of society that they like in social services especially I, I kind of fell into social services if you will I've always wanted to help people I just didn't know what in what context that that looked like for me and I've always really enjoyed working alongside people and so I it, working in team environments kind of came out of that as well I worked in the shelter environment you really have to work as a team there to support people you're working with like really marginalized humans and people who I was working at a violence against women shelter and so people who've experienced like pretty recent and significant trauma and what does that look like and how do you what's the word that I'm looking for how do you not put like something on them how do you not put like a label on them or how do you not put your own trauma on somebody else how do you put that on the backside? I mean you you do that by being a good friend right you relate to your friends but by being a good friend and a good human to other people you let them share their own experiences without you putting your own feelings and like definitions of things on them and so that kind of it sounds strange but that's what made me really kind of like delve into this work and one of my very very good friends who still lives and works in Hamilton she's a social worker herself and she was my first person that I had as an interaction with like an actual registered social worker I mean as a side note I know you and I spoke about how college is it's really, really good for getting that tangible experience. But as we as we work through the field, and now, now I know you have a master's degree, um, we understand why employers need like a qualification, right? A quali- uh, someone who is certifiable, if you will, and can be registered 
Um, it's important. It, it helps protect the people that we work for, our clients, and it helps protect the, the workers as well. I think we all should go to college at some point, <laughs> just, just even if you're just getting a certificate or a diploma in something. Um, but one of my one of my very very dear friends who I, who I met in a university, she was my first like a, like glimpse into the social work world and primarily the language around confidentiality and documentation and things that come that I, I, I do to this day even though I'm not a social worker. She was like my first like support in that when I started the concurrent disorders program. It, it, there are a lot of people that come from social work into that and they just want to learn more specifically about mental health and addictions and like the holistic sense and they want to go into the mental health field there's a lot of aspects and like facets of social work but mental health is one of them and um she really helped me truly understand like what that looked like she's like i know you've got the good like logical theoretical background now how do we put that tangibly into something that you want to do so that you're not just writing papers from a theoretical standpoint you're able to actually like document properly <laughs> um, what's happening in in a, a very very objective point of like objective way right the documentation that we do in this this world I've always loved writing and typing and all of those things however we can't be subjective we like we all we all have our our own like intrinsic things that we we grew up with and the way that we see the world um so there is some subjectivity to everything that we do however when we're documenting and putting things in people's health files like yeah i think i fully digressed from the question that you had originally asked but my the people around me have always had an influence on everything that i do and my family, my friends, everybody I spend my time with now. As someone who literally studies social psychology, I can imagine that you would also resonate with the idea that there's so much richness in having people mm -hmm. who are from diverse backgrounds, who have diverse yes. perspectives. All of those things are really, really important for like both us as people to be able to develop, but also to influence our work too. I've worked yes. with lots of multidisciplinary teams as well. And yeah. I feel as though that's kind of the most important thing in those teams is that everyone has their own thing that they bring to the table. Mm -hmm. It's so incredible to be able to work with people from that, from different backgrounds. Can you tell me a bit more about the work that you do right now? What is your position? Yes, yeah. So I am currently a case manager for, um, and I work for a community health services organization on a multidisciplinary community mental health team. Um, so now the team that I work on has some similarities to a classic ACT team. And for those of you who don't know, it's an assertive community treatment team. And there's a lot of guidelines and um, requirements to fulfill like becoming a client of an ACT team. Um, so the multidisciplinary team that I work on, we have some more flexibility in our eligibility criteria meaning we will accept people into our services even if they don't necessarily have um, there's a minimum days in hospital requirement that the act model and act teams require we do have uh, a similar requirement for eligibility criteria on our team um, for an access one disorder uh, meaning like a serious mental illness uh, as for people who don't know that would be like schizophrenia and serious mood disorder um, so access one disorders like that's using DSM criteria, which we don't <laughs> necessarily rely our entire work on. Um, and we don't 
I mean, if someone has a serious mental illness diagnosis and it's complicated or, or a not, maybe not a specifically an access one disorder, but the, the mental illness diagnosis or the mental health diagnosis, sorry, I'm flubbing my words, um, that they have is complicated by other health issues and they require support with, let's say, medical follow-up, medication management, those things our multidisciplinary team is able to support. So in the big scheme of things, it, it's really, it can become complicated in terms of criteria based on like where the need is. So multidisciplinary teams um, and my role as a case manager, I work alongside nurses. I work alongside social workers, behavior therapists. We have a, an amazing psychiatrist on our team. Um, I used to work alongside Kate from episode 11 and from previously in season two. Uh, she's phenomenal. She's the person that connected Mel and I. And I was I operated as her team lead for, for a period of time um, while our current team lead was she, she was away for, for school. And the work that we do is we help stabilize our clients and help connect them with just proper services, stabilization in terms of the medical sense. In a very clinical term, we help as much as possible keep people out of hospital. That is our the main goal and why community treatment teams came to existence in the first place um, with a community psychiatrist. We work alongside a pharmacy that helps you know, dispense the medication for our clients. We help connect people with primary care, with other facets of like cardiology, physiotherapy, like whatever else they need in the big health sense. And also if someone financially maybe is on Ontario Works but would be eligible for ODSP, we can help them get connected for to get onto disability and get a little bit more money each month. We don't specifically do housing. However, we are constantly, the housing is a major, major issue, especially in Toronto, um, especially during a pandemic where people are very financially strapped across all facets of society um, and the housing landscape in Toronto is constantly trying to change to the better, however, not quickly enough. And we work with a lot of people who are very transient and feel safer on the streets than even in shelters or feel safer living on the street than even in their own home or in a boarding home, especially in Toronto. Boarding homes can be really not great spaces I've, I've seen amazing ones um but if there's if they're ones that are geared towards people who can like afford them while living on odsp it can be really complicated for some and so we as a team which this is the most amazing piece of it we problem solve together we information and resource share with our peers we discuss clinical information about the medication someone's taking and how this may present in terms of side effects or symptom management. We help with delivering medication. We help our clients attend appointments, make sure their basic needs are being met um, in terms of like, for, some, for someone who may not understand what that is, like that's really truly like grocery shopping, cleaning in their apartment, arranging services for all of these things. I mean, it's everyone's personal comfort level in terms of the context of COVID as well, right? I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were staying away from people's homes while trying to like provide service in the doorway. 
And now as the pandemic has kind of evolved and our safety and like what we can do with our clients has, now I'm on TTC with my clients, like <laughs> at least once a week trying to attend appointments to the best of our abilities, as opposed to we can't drive any people, we can't drive people anymore. We used to be able to drive people to appointments and attend them that way. And we had so much more flexibility in the city and build social rapport in person as opposed to over the phone. Um, this pandemic's done a lot, <laughs> especially in the mental health field. I feel um, the work that we do right now, especially with our clients um, in the community, I for we forget how resilient humans are, um, especially people who've, who've been through some shit in their life uh, and the resiliency that that carries over. And, and we see that now while the rest of the world, the whole world is grieving in a way and going through its own trauma, our clients and people who've been through pretty serious things in their lives have maintained resilience and almost stayed more resilient than, <laughs> than like myself or some of my friends. Um, uh, yeah, it's, I really, really enjoy the work that I do. It feels very meaningful. I'm very, very client and human centered in everything that I do. So being able to wake up every day, I have my own clients that I, that I work directly with. And we also work as a team. So I also work with my coworkers, clients, like we're very team based in that sense. However, I do have people that I'll wake up in the morning um, and I'll give them a call while I'm making my coffee. And we'll like, that's, that's our rapport. That's our human connection outside of the medical sphere or the clinical sphere and those are my clients still right I'm still going to work and my job is very focused on them and their lives and that's really meaningful to me and what what do they need from each each and every day what do they need truly <laughs> and it's my job to make sure those needs are being met even if I can't meet them to put or to arrange a service that that can meet that for them amazing yeah, case management is such an interesting job. Everything is completely different every day, even multiple times a day, depending on yes. the client you're working with, you're, it looks entirely different. I'm glad that you brought up the fact that you work with, or you worked with Kate as well, because Kate is a social worker. Her yes. background is specifically in Indigenous social work as well, which is very, very different. Also a very, very specific degree. Um, similarly to yours being a very specific degree, yes. yet you both work on the same team performing yeah. the same kind of function. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit more about that. How is it similar and different to social work? Yes. So I, having worked, and I, so I know I mentioned this, having worked alongside social workers my entire career so far, and a number of my close friends are social workers. I mean, I have a relatively thorough understanding of what and the work that social workers do. This does blur the lines of separation for people who work in my field. But I mean, we work in human services professions and especially on the mental health side. And our jobs do exist to work collaboratively to help improve the lives of the people that we're working with and members in society. We deliver essential social services. So, I mean, our clients don't usually notice the difference between their workers' educational backgrounds unless this is something we have disclosed. I mean, this is important. We're focusing on quality of care for our clients. Um, often there is a general generalization of social work. And I know people who are registered social workers really don't love other people being called social workers, which is, is fine. I mean, sometimes our clients will be like, oh, my worker or my social worker. 
Um, and I mean, social workers contribute to the human services field specifically by providing holistic solutions. So that's like the social, behavioral, economical, or health problems faced by their clients. And I know that I'd mentioned this before, but the work that we do as social psychologists, because we're looking at the basic understanding of being around other people and functioning as a human in society, how does this influence our mind? So we social psychologists are trying to understand exactly how and why this happens. So I, I love personally, I mean, it is, it's still holistic in that sense, but I, I try to understand the role that the social interactions that we're experiencing every day play in governing someone's feelings, thoughts, and emotions. So maybe a little less tangible. I mean, I, I understand the tangible and the work that we do, as I say, is very, very similar, but it's really looking at someone and their history and also the interaction, maybe how I'm presenting to them in non, especially nonverbal cues, Mel, especially. And how does that govern their thoughts, feelings, emotions, how I say something, how maybe a specific word, the language that I'm using, what does that play into each and every interaction? And I mean, within this, social psychologists focus their efforts on helping people address these the, the damaging like effects that trauma and mental health and physical health can have on someone. And it's so difficult because I mean I've worked in the the helping helping profession and especially in, on the health side for for years. And I think that the lines are very much blurred. And, and healthcare is it can be really complicated at times. And I mean we all have our our different understandings of things. I mean we work on a very clinical team alongside clinical professionals, um, including our nurses and our psychiatrists. Um, I mean personally, as a social psychologist, I just try to understand a little bit more about what's influencing their mind, even if even if it's something intrinsic, right? I mean, I can't ask people to to explain what's going on in their minds all the time. One of my clients loves to ask that though, like, what are you thinking right now? And I'm very transparent and honest. I'm like, I am thinking about the rest of my work day. I apologize that I am not in the moment and being mindful right now. Um, and then I'll ask her, I'll turn the question back and be like, what are you thinking about? She'll and she'll just be honest and transparent as well, and we'll go from there. Um, that might be, that's just an example of something while we're sitting in like a waiting room for a doctor or something like that, right? And um, I mean, the biggest piece while working alongside social workers um, that I found is I think that there's a lot to learn on both sides. I, for From social workers, I've learned like some tangible solutions and solution-focused work in a holistic sense, and I think that the social workers that I work alongside do try to understand maybe like some therapeutic solutions or understanding where people are coming from without like the labels of things and understanding like the ways that we deliver our words and our services can really influence how someone reacts to us or influence like how their minds like something might trigger them unexpectedly. Um, and that, that not, is not necessarily a reflection of us, but really the, the we're, part, we're part of a system and there is trauma, like trauma-informed care really helps you understand that working as a, um, a clinician in healthcare or in a, a bigger system, the system itself can be uh, traumatic and there can be trauma that's, that comes from the system that we work for, not just like Ontario Health, but really workers and doctors and other nurses and other social workers. Um, I mean, we truly, 
align ourselves with client-centered care. I mean, at my job, I think that hospital work muddles community work often, and there's a lot of burnout that happens in the hospital that's a little bit different than the community, and the work that we do is, is very different, and there's a lot of hostility between community and hospital workers at times, or even community-based workers and um, shelter workers, because they're working in a residential setting. Yeah, I, it's, <laughs> I could go on for, could go on for quite a bit about the, the differences and the, and especially in community work, I've always worked community. I mean, I worked in the shelter system for a bit. I was a drive for community and getting people stabilized in the community. So I, I would like to stay in this work and it feels very valuable <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, there definitely are a lot of tensions between the different fields of practice for mm-hmm. sure. Um, having worked in a kind of a vast variety of them myself at this point, I've really seen that because I've done very clinical work. I have a private practice. I work on the back end doing like grant writing and fundraising now. Okay. Yeah, I've done uh, community mental health treatment. I've done so many things. I worked in the shelter system as well. Yes. In nonprofits. And the tension between all of them is so palpable. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting too, though, because when it all comes together, it's a really beautiful thing when people are it able really to, is. yeah, when people are able to really work together. One of the people that I interviewed in my very first season, I think he was my second guest, David. He actually did that. He was the coordinator for all of these services and hearing about the things that we can achieve when we all come together and work yeah. in a really seamless way is incredible. So I think it's really, it's really cool to have people in all of these different positions who are able to understand each other. And yeah. one of the things that I'm hoping to facilitate with these conversations too, is understanding that we're all on the same team, even if we don't really always are. feel like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel the biggest, uh, I have a lot of friends who work in hospital settings and people who've worked in the community and moved to the hospital setting, especially if they have um, a master's of social work or some, some of the higher credentials that the hospital setting require for, for good reason. I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> people who are upset when they don't have those kinds of requirements and still feel like that there is, there's obviously value to hours or, or years of service or years of work, if you will. Um, but I understand where the hospital qualifications come from, really, truly coming down to certifiability and registration with a college and how important that is to protect people and protect, like, I don't know, legislation in that sense. And I think hospital and community is always so difficult. Hospital is an acute setting, a very especially in mental health. Um, I've actually always had amazing, amazing interactions with mental health floors and wards and, like, the intensive care unit, the PQ, like the psychiatry intensive care units at all of the hospitals in Toronto. Um, there's a huge respect amongst uh, those the specific mental health floors because they are working with um, our clients in their most dire times. I, and when people are extraordinarily unwell. Um, and so there's a lot of respect for them in that sense. They, they have to deal with like, they have to work with our people <laughs> in those settings, which can be pretty traumatizing, I find for community, I mean, for community workers, when we see people unwell often in the community, and we're navigating that at the, the peak of their unwellness, that's when they go to hospital. Um, so even though we see a lot, and we're able to navigate a lot in a very like open community setting with a lot of potential environmental dangers outside of outside of the person that we're working with. Um, and then the acute setting, they get an isolated version 
probably are people at their most unwell. And then they seem to have some respect for like what we're going to carry through and how do we carry out the work that they've, they've possibly started in a really positive way. Like let's just say medically, very specifically, what is the medication and how do we maintain as much as possible that someone's going to continue this treatment outside of hospital? Because really that's where life continues outside of hospital. And even better, can we do that without a community treatment order? Can we have the person on board with their treatment? <laughs> That's always, nobody wants a community treatment order. Nobody wants that. Nobody ever wants that. Those are in place specifically when someone does not have capacity over their own treatment decisions or does not have an understanding of what their diagnosis is or their own symptoms and doesn't have, maybe they're pretty early on in their, in their mental health journey and haven't reached that point. But I have a lot of respect for inpatient mental health units. I think that the hostility really comes honestly, Mel, between emergency like room workers and especially nurses who are have been in the field, have seen everything, are very burnt out, are quite jaded. I have a lot of empathy. I think the hostility really comes when there's like a revolving door for our clients that are showing up to emergency for a variety of reasons. And then they... Um, I don't know how hostile they feel towards us necessarily, but there's like, oh, just follow up with your worker. Like, why isn't your worker doing this, 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 right? They might be working um, as a nurse, as an emergency room nurse, a seven to seven in the night, and I would be sleeping at that time. Um, we have our coaching line, which is great for our clients. It's 24 hours. However, there is no like in-person service at midnight from our team. So I can imagine there's, there's feelings back and forth in that way. Um, I feel the not-for-profit sector, uh, we've always worked alongside really well with like the Lynn, which is now home and community care. They're our primary, they're our primary funder for our organization as they are like for almost all of the not-for-profit healthcare um, agencies across the city and across the province. In that sense, it's really interesting because they typically are community-based. I mean, during the pandemic, a lot of the the care coordinators that work for them, like work for the Lynn or Home and Community Care are working from home. I've never, I've always felt that we need to work alongside them as much as possible. I mean, in the big scheme of things, we really need to work alongside everybody, but we very much put our focus, even though they're specifically government funded and we're very much <laughs> not for profit. Uh, we've always worked really like really well alongside the Lynn and Home and Community Care. They're providing an extremely essential service for community-based organizations and, and like community-based clients and humans that are need, need services in their homes. So we've been very fortunate. Absolutely. So in the spirit of being able to create greater understanding to facilitate working well together, okay. if you could sum it up in just a couple of sentences, what you would want people to know about being a social psychologist working in a case management position, what would you want them to know? we are all client-centered, we're all human-centered, we're really supporting people. That is the biggest reason any of us go into this field. Really, truly, we have to, we have to make that our primary focus. We're working for a system, we're, we're helping the system help other people, right? We're delivering essential services, we're helping people navigate the system, and, you know, we're always for advocating for our clients to utilize the services to suit their needs best, really, truly. And we're all client-centered, first and foremost. I know that we are. I know that even if people are caught up in, in numbers and funding, 
we all go into this field, especially in the frontline worker sense, to help the people that we're working, we're working alongside. We're really peers in this. We're our, we're peers with our clients. I also Mel work with adults <laughs> for this reason as well. It, children, I mean youth. I, huge, huge props and huge kudos to everybody who work alongside children. There's a, a complexity to that that I I know I will not fully be able to grasp and we have actually a transitional aged youth worker who works on our team with us on our multidisciplinary team she's absolutely phenomenal she and i have become close friends as well um she's got a very thorough understanding of the the challenges there but i mean when we're working with adults we're also adults we're also humans <laughs> we all have our own understandings of things and i think our our clients really appreciate when we humanize literally everything and we turn it into a, like a social interaction as opposed to like a a transactional interaction if you will and maybe that's the social psychologist in me coming out in that sense and really getting down to the nitty-gritty with my clients and the people I mean they sometimes I sometimes they don't want to be called our clients right they sometimes they do sometimes there's a, a feeling of nurturing or a feeling of care in that that language um, it's geared to each person right sometimes we, I'm walking around in the community with my client and they're like, hey, I just want to be seen as your friend in this setting, right? And that's, that's the, there we go into the, <laughs> into seeing, seeing, being seen in society as, as someone, right? We're not, we're not working, we're not operating in a silo and we're not operating separate from other people. It's really, really impacts how we see ourselves. Um, in a clinical setting, um, my clients are very focused on, yes, you're my worker, you're here to help me. I need you, especially now. Um, I, you are an essential worker for me, so I need you to come into this appointment. And and then in more of like the casual settings, it's like, no, you're my friend, you're my peer. And being able to gear our client-centered work, like really, truly, we're here for our clients and what and making sure their needs are met <laughs> in the most basic sense. I mean, we're making sure our needs are being met at the same time, but our needs are really in, in our day-to-day -day work. Like, what does, what does our client need, right? That's... <laughs> the simplest way to put it in client-centered care is I think what we're all here for. Yeah, it's an incredibly complex system full of all of these different aspects and perspectives and requirements. But when you boil it all down, really we're just here for our clients. It's yes. the simplest thing. Yeah, exactly. It's just done in a massively complex way. Yeah, exactly, because the system itself is complex. I mean, <laughs> you've said that I know so many times already. Uh, the system's complex. It's, I mean, we have one, which is amazing. That is something to be extraordinarily grateful for. There is something in place, and then there are people in place to help navigate that system. <laughs> we have healthcare, even if it's very basic. We have healthcare. This is great. Great start. Let's keep going. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's keep going. But not with this interview. Thank you yeah. <laughs> so much for being here today, Sarah. This has been really amazing. I love all the perspectives that you shared. And I think that it's a really cool perspective that you're operating from. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, Melanie, this has been lovely. <laughs> thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to share her thoughts. Her insights were super valuable, and I know I definitely learned a lot. Next week will be our last interview in the Allied Professional Series, so be sure to tune in.
Thanks for listening to The Social Work Social. By sharing information and stories, we hope that you will gain new knowledge and empathy for those who are different from you. All of us have unique backgrounds and experiences, but through our stories, we can learn to relate to one another. Our communities are currently facing extreme challenges, and we all have different strengths and skills that we bring to the table to help combat those challenges. Through working together, we can make a difference. I challenge you to go outside of your comfort zone to find an issue that you can lend your support. Tune in next Friday for another episode of The Social Work Social.